KZSU, Stanford, 90.1 FM. I am Mark Molino. This is the Henry George Program, the show all about local politics, land use and access, and much more. Today on the program, we have on former Palo Alto City Council member Corey Wolbach, who has been vocal of late about Foothills Park, a Palo Alto institution closed to non-residents. So we'll talk about this park, its exclusion, and also how it fits into the larger ideological underpinnings of the Palo Alto Residentialist Program. So without further ado, let's, uh, let's get into it. So uh, welcome, uh, welcome, Corey. Thanks for coming on to talk about this. Thanks for having me on board. Glad to be on the show. Yeah, I'm, I am swimming in information about Foothills Park. This is such a weird rabbit hole of just crazy business so let's uh let's try to break this down for for listeners what's going on uh first off how would you describe the actual physical foothills park just uh put it into words yeah so foothills park is a huge gorgeous public park in foot in in the foothills of the santa cruz mountains at the southern end basically of the city of palo alto uh, it takes up, I think I looked up uh, about a little over 8% of Palo Alto is in Foothills Park. It has rolling hills, great single track trails. Um, some parts of it are very much manicured, you know, like a park, you know, manicured lawns, an artificial lake, uh, visitor center. Uh, so it's, it's not uh, totally natural, uh, but it is a, a great place with, you know, interesting variety of uh, foliage and micro ecosystems and wildlife. Um, it's just a great place. And most kids who grew up in Palo Alto, you go on field trips there and stuff. And so it's, it's well known to a lot of residents of the city. Yeah. I, w- I wasn't so lucky enough to uh, visit it until uh, this past summer. Uh, yeah. Great, great overlooks of, uh, you can see all the way out to Oakland, you know, just a beautiful, huge mm-hmm. place, 1400 acres. Uh, and according to uh, Palo Alto itself, it believes this is the only public park in all of California which has a ban on non-residents. That is correct. That is correct. It is a public park only open to members of the public who happen to live in Palo Alto or their um, blood relatives or accompanied guests. And I think city employees are, have also been allowed. Uh, not only blood relatives, you can also adopt people or marriage. Oh, adopted relatives. Okay. So, so feel free to adopt your roommate and, right. and you know let them come in. <laughs> Uh, but, uh, yeah, so it's, it's, uh, been around, uh, it was first acquired in 1959, uh, expanded 1965. Uh, and yeah, I, I don't know the rest of the country. Sometimes you have some really weird private parks as part of like a weird, uh, real estate, uh, deal, but I don't know other private public parks uh, elsewhere in the country even. Uh, but this has been controversial for decades uh, and, you know, uh, in your time in, in council, uh, you, you were saying that you, you, you tried to push the issue, uh, of, you know, and just kind of see if there's uh, some dialogue for it. And, you know, it was, it was hard to get even a hearing, right? Yeah. Um, you know, when we were talking about Foothills Park, when it was on the agenda, not, not the topic of whether to change the residency requirement, but just um, whether to, um, you know, just updates about the park and, changing some of the uses in the park um, or just talking about our parks in general. You know, the issue of whether open Foothills park was floated. I think I mentioned it. I got quite a bit of pushback, 
talked to a couple of my colleagues offline uh, and really found, uh, to put it mildly, very little appetite. So it was just like there was, you know, at the time the city council was nine people and it was just really obvious that I might have two, maybe three votes at most to uh, pursue letting non-residents in the park. So um, uh, I just didn't get very far with that initiative. <laughs> so I just, I, there was not much that I could do when I was on the council. You know, sometimes I wish I'd been more vocal about it, but I guess you gotta, you gotta pick your battles. But um, I've definitely been more vocal about it in a couple of years since. Yeah, so I, I guess you were, you're tapping at the door and you know, things have changed in the last couple of years, slowly and then suddenly all at once. Uh, so I guess to describe exactly what we're talking about, uh, this has been prohibited non-residents, uh, I think, since since the beginning, uh, in, you know, when it was acquired or after soon after being acquired in 1959. Yeah. But it wasn't until 1969 they created an ordinance, and the ordinance uh, is if you if you get into the park as a non-resident, you can be fined a thousand dollars or put in jail for six months. Yep. It's a misdemeanor. That's how misdemeanors work. I don't know. As far as I know, nobody's actually been arrested or put in jail. But the point is, you could be. What? Right? When that's you know, hanging you over about, your head, it's pretty bad. Yeah. You know, I think about analogy, you know, because some people will say like, oh, what's the big deal? So it's residents only. It's not like we enforce it that harshly. Some, you know, oftentimes you go there in the middle of the week and there's not even a guard at the gate, you know, checking or range with the gate checking. I'm like, yeah, okay. So if we aren't enforcing it that much, why bother keeping it? And you think about other things we don't enforce that well, say drug laws, mm -hmm. right? <laughs> you know, there are, you know, you know, and I'm personally advocate in California is now behind you know, uh, decriminalizing things like marijuana, just because, you know, we didn't enforce it that harshly doesn't mean that uh, it was a good thing or think about, you know, prohibition, right? We didn't enforce prohibition that strongly. Uh, you know, so we finally changed the rule. We realized, oh, this is ridiculous. Let's get rid of the rule. Weird, uh, weird, bad laws with discretion tend to have <laughs> a very ugly, prejudiced bias. Uh, you know, it's 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 no shock that you know uh, rich white people breaking drug laws don't tend up in prison. But uh, you know, that's 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 what goes on. Uh, but yeah, so I, I here is I think the the brief summary of where we are now, and I'm just going to kind of break it down, uh, and and you correct me uh, if it comes up here. The Parks and Recreations or the Parks and Recreation Commission, I don't know if I have that exactly right, PRC, uh, they started talking about it in 2018. In 2019, uh, they uh, started moving forward. They voted on uh, to say let's start uh, opening this up and and start a pilot program. Uh, this was the actual council didn't get to it at all until this summer uh, in June, and then they moved to delay it. They got back from a break, then they talked about it, and uh, they did something uh, which was considered by some to be kind of just delaying it further. That a pilot program, the pilot program would also be coupled with a referendum in 2022 to allow the entire city to vote on whether it should be open to non-residents, and put in stipulations notably it must be revenue neutral which is pretty that's i, I think it might sound kind of uh uh adenine but it's, it's a poison pill yeah it's a poison absolutely pill. yeah let's, let's be clear it makes it impossible yeah people say like this means it not only can move forward in 2022 but the it has to be revenue neutral for all the environmental studies they're going to place on top of it which are going to cost a fortune and they say, well, we'll open up as soon as you can pay off all these debts. Like that's not gonna, that's never going to happen, right? I don't know. 
So uh, yeah, uh, and I think so. So some groups uh, after this realized that this delay is unacceptable, and they move forward the lawsuit, which I think was been brewing, but they finally sprung it September. Uh, so this lawsuit was put together. I want you to describe who's behind the lawsuit. Yeah. Oh, I, and I can go through kind of like more detailed history, but I think you're doing a good job summarizing the the, the main points. Um, you know, we can come back with sure. to, to kind of play by play, which is kind of interesting and has some fun tidbits. Um, but the lawsuit is primarily ACLU and NAACP, along with some residents of um, you know Powell residents and business owners in Palo Alto and nearby cities. Yeah, I saw one one of the plaintiffs is uh, a new council person in Sunnyvale, Alyssa, uh, Alyssa mm-hmm. Cisneros. So it's yep. interesting interesting names uh, on it. Yeah, also uh, uh, Laura Martinez, um, who is a former mayor from East Palo Alto. Mm. Yeah, so, uh, so they sprung this lawsuit. We can get into the actual grounds of the lawsuit a bit later. Uh, but in short, it was settled... Uh, fairly quickly, right? Or I guess what well, it didn't drag on. They did not want to take in litigation. Well, yeah. So the, the lawsuit was filed in September, and the the city approved. You know, basically, I, I think like the initial um, outlines of what would be necessary to settle uh, November second, and then second reading on November sixteenth. So uh, in the settlement, actually, you said it was what date? Oh, that's, I don't know if this is the date of the actual settlement, but the date when the council took up the, um, the new ordinance to basically, basically a new ordinance to say, uh, we're going to open the park, which is important for this settlement. Uh, that was November 2nd. So the day before election day, uh, and then there was a second reading on November 16th, um, you know, there's also, of course, which is appropriate, there are closed sessions with the public can't see when, you know, council members are hearing from their attorney, getting, you know, attorney-client privileged advice and making the ultimate decision about what to do. But that's then, you know, report out to public. Um, and then, of course, the actual, you know, the city and the litigants have to um, actually sign the documents. I don't know what the actual date of that was. Okay, but another, okay, so it sounds like, okay, happy ending, you know, uh, it was sued, uh, they they settled it, and the settlement involves ordinance, the ordinance passed uh, only one dissenting vote, I believe, right, Lydia Koo? Uh, two, oh. two, Lydia Koo and Greg Tanaka oh, okay. both I, I thought, opposed. Would he, so, did he also oppose the August resolution and the later one? Yeah, 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 okay, and like okay. I said, we can go back, we can go back through the play-by-play, sure, okay. it can build that for you, but yeah, but right now there's, so there's a lawsuit, you know, this, you know, basically the city delayed a bunch, uh, people sued city said, I guess we better, uh, open the park after all, because <laughs> it doesn't look great with the lawsuit. Um, they approved a settlement and I think you were going to say what you're aware of with the next steps. Yeah. Well, so it sounds like happily ever after it's going to open up, but wait, not so soon. Uh, there is an email sent out by Lydia Koo, uh, subject line developer giveaways, big time, which somehow was mostly about the Foothills Park and her spearheading uh, the the motion to effectively re-close it, uh, which is really, really wild. So just, just I guess, uh, t- tell us a little bit more about, you know, what Lydia is, is doing. Yeah. Um, so basically right now there's a referendum circulating, a petition for a referendum. As a referendum, if they get sufficient signatures, would... Um, force the city to put on hold their plans to open the park, uh, or if they've just opened the park to reclose the park. Um, and that would then 
force a, a referendum to the ballot. You know, they would go to the ballot and the, the voters would decide, do we want to support what the council did or not? Um, of course, one of the stipulations of the settlement with the ACLU and the, you know, the fellow litigants, one of the stipulations was um, if electors qualify a referendum for the ballot to overturn this, the settlement's off. Yeah. So that means if they collect sufficient signatures, I think they need 20, 22,580 signatures, I think. Uh, that's so so t- about, yeah, 2580, yeah. Uh, but you, know, you add a buffer because you're going to have some signatures yeah. which are invalid or, you know, they don't check their all their yeah. boxes. So you ha- they're, they're right. trying an extra 10% on top of that. Right. But let's say they rate, you know, they find there are two and a half thousand, three thousand signatures. Uh, that will not only reclose the park, that will also reopen the litigation. So that'll land the city back in court. Yeah, which there's a, I guess, a bunch of different, you know, elements. One will be the actual, you know, the actual case and just also the bad, the bad PR. I mean, there's nothing that makes, Palo Alto has a, uh, an image problem in a number of ways. And I think Foothills Park is one of its, you know, uglier and I think more cartoonish uh, elements to it. Uh, I think what's really, really funny. Uh, uh, so Lydia Koo, I don't, uh, no need to introduce her. Everyone knows her. Uh, if you listen to this program, <laughs> I think you can assume the real realtor, uh, city council uh, person for Palo Alto. Uh, she, she is echoing many people in the city, saying, "What is the problem here? It's not that she she has nothing against letting people in the park. She is just so upset that if we let this settlement stand, it will paint Palo Altans." as racist and supporting segregation, uh, which I think is just incredibly funny that somehow I don't like being called a segregationalist, so I must support blocking non-residents from going to our park. It's, it's, it's... Well, to be fair, she also doesn't support opening the park. So <laughs> it's, you know, it's, it's, it's both. It's, yeah. but... it's a, 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 a you know, mixed motivations, I think. It's it's yet to, yet to above the line what you say you know in you know full voice what what is the subtext but it's it right yeah uh, should we talk about maybe kind of what Palo Alto has historically and continues to say are the reasons why this is closed uh, so I have I've just written down yeah. why don't you why don't you uh, you know uh, talk a bit about that yeah so let's so we, should we let's get a little bit more into the details of the history so that's yeah that's basically where we're at right you know yeah. the city has this park for it's been closed to non-residents for a long time the city started considering opening it they delayed it a bunch got sued decided to settle and some people led by council member Koo, are trying to overturn that because they want to go back to court and keep the, keep the park closed. that's kind of the the tldr and, version. And, and just to sp- um, state one more time they're in a mad dash they need to get the signatures by the middle of december uh, yeah, yeah, that's right. So they can they need to get the signatures by December sixteenth, and um, they might get them. They might not. If they don't get the signatures, they could do a regular initiative. If they do an initiative, uh, that would not force the park to reclose until after the initiative is successful, unlike a referendum. Uh, but it would also reopen litigation. So if they miss it, if they miss the signatures with this, they might try again with an initiative. So if they get the signatures on December sixteenth. Then the Santa Clara County Registrar of Voters has up to 10 days to review the signatures and certify. Uh, that'll probably take a couple of days. Um, so they get the sig- let's say they get their signatures by December 16th. Well, the city is moving ahead with their approved and second reading approval to open the park to non-residents on December 17th. Yeah. So you might 
have signatures submitted to the registrar of voters on the 16th. Park opens on the 17th. Within a couple days, county registrar of voters gets back and says, hey, Palo Alto, guess what? Uh, these people qualified. You've got to close the park again. Um, and so the park will then be reclosed just in time for Christmas. Which one more thing, too, is there has I don't know if always, but at least for uh, as far back as I've been hearing, there's been a limit on the park of a thousand people, which has been further limited uh -huh. to 750 during COVID. Uh, and they have never actually ever exceeded the 1000 back until 1999, I think, if or to. So, so. Yeah. So I, I think so. Yeah, there's a, a limit of 1000 people at a time in the park. That's in the city ordinance, you know, that you shouldn't have more than 1000 people in the park. I mean, it doesn't ever really get close to that. It's a huge um, park. Let's be very clear. Yeah, it's a, right, it's a huge park. And attendance there is usually quite limited, with the exception of like Memorial Day, Mother's Day, Father's Day, Fourth of July. There's almost never more than like a handful of people in this entire giant park. Yeah. Um, and I don't think we've even come close to that thousand person limit, except like, I, th I think there was, might've been a concert. There that was the last ago. time. It was a concert. Like one the... time, like yeah. decades ago. Uh, so they, they, I think they decided that at least when the park first is open to non-residents, they're going to lower it to 750 per day, mm -hmm. which we also are unlikely to hit. Often. Unless, unless, um, if you say that there's this narrow window between opening and reclosing before Christmas, <laughs> are you going to like a rush of people throughout the bay? It's like we only have a week yeah. to see it. <laughs> you know, here's the thing: the, this you kind of go back to your question that we kind of put on put on the back burner for now, which is or maybe we should get back to, which is why does the city not want to open the park? What are the reasons people say they don't want to open the park? And one of the concerns is that if you open the park, it'll get crowded. Yeah. Now. There are a lot of open space preserves and parks in our area, some in the city of Palo Alto, which are not crazy overcrowded at the Baylands or Rostradero Preserve, which actually borders um, Foothills Park, uh, Montebello Open Space Preserve, which is also in the city of Palo Alto, but is run by the Mid Peninsula Regional Open Space District, MROSD, also called MidPen. Um, uh, um, Montebello was the first MidPen preserve. You know, decades ago, it also um, is kind of the, just further south from Foothills Park, in technically in Palo Alto. Almost none of those parks are ever too crowded. There's one park in the entire MidPen or MROSD system that people point to often and say, oh, if we let in non-residents, it's going to become like that one. And that's Rancho San Antonio. Mm. Rancho San Antonio is like the one popular one to go to. It's like the thing for everyone in the region to go to that one. Personally, it's not even my favorite, but it's it's sometimes busy there. Um, but it's also free, yeah. right? So one of the counter arguments has been, you know, if we're going to open it to non-residents, if it starts to get too crowded, maybe we do what uh, county parks often do, uh, like Hudart Park in San Mateo County, right near Palo Alto, just outside, you know, it's pretty close to Palo Alto. You know, to charge five or ten dollars per non-resident vehicle. Um, you know, so when people say you know, it's, you know, because if you if you have all these other parks in our region, which we do, Phil's Park is nice, but it's not necessarily the nicest. Uh, there are things I love about it, um, but you have all these other options for places to go. If the char city charged five or ten dollars per vehicle, uh, that would be an incentive for people to go somewhere else, and it would recruit some costs to help pay for maintenance of the park that's kind of what i've always thought would be the reasonable approach open it to everyone charge a few bucks for a vehicle if somebody uh has the you know if somebody um 
walks or hikes in or bikes in, uh, just, you know, let them in for free. Uh, and then it encourages people, if you charge per vehicle, it encourages carpooling. Yeah. You know, it just seems like a reasonable approach. Um, but and and I, I'll, I'll, I'll point out, I'm not a huge fan of, I, I don't even know if it's even really, it might be unconstitutional for the same reason for charging for only non-resident vehicles, as opposed to, if you're trying to deal with congestion, mm-hmm. have a flat, unbiased policy for all vehicles. All vehicles produce the same amount of congestion. Right. So having, well, charging, I think you could charge per vehicle, but say bicycle, like charge per car, but have bicycles be free i think that's yeah it actually deal with that. the impact right um and as far as like a discount for residents look i don't think there's anything wrong with a city charging a reasonable fee for a service and then providing a discount up to 100 percent for residents um that's kind of what i always thought the city should do is say you know five bucks and then free for residents but um one of the things that happened by forcing it to the lawsuit the city lost some flexibility uh, and part of the lawsuit says, uh, part of the settlement is, um, if there is a discount in any potential future hypothetical fee, and right now it's free, so it's not an issue, but if there's a fee in the future, uh, there could be a discount for residents, but that discount could not be more than 25%. Mm. So if you charge, you know, if you charge $10 for non-residents, you couldn't charge less than $750 for residents. Um Still runs the yeah, wrong way, but that's is, at least I think uh, sounds pretty reasonable, you know. So yeah, yeah. But so what? Going back to like, what are the reasons people argue yeah. to not open the park to the residents? What you see is a lot of moving goalposts, uh, where somebody will say, bring up a reason, you address it with a perfectly reasonable solution, and then say, oh well, what about this other thing? So they'll say, well, you know, it'll be too crowded on the trails. Or then it'll, or we'll, we'll have enough parking. There's that's hardly ever an issue. And if it were, you know, you can just limit the number of cars or charge more for cars and encourage carpooling and biking. You could, you could also um, have like a like a lottery system. You apply online, and they kind of, you know, could give you like, oh, here's your receipt. You know, you you won the lottery for this day. You know, it's plenty yeah, of ways to do all, this. All kinds of things you do. You could, um, uh, you know, people say, well, what about impact the environment? Right. This is going to damage the environment. It's like okay. Well, if your issue is you're worried about too many people there damaging the environment, then let's reduce that thousand number to 50 or 100 or whatever the right number is to protect the environment. If you're worried about the environment, and remember, this is not a pristine natural environment. Like there's a fake lake, there's giant manicured lawns, there's roads. Like it's, I I mean, I'm, I'm in favor of preserving the ecology as much as we can without diminishing the human experience. I don't want to destroy all, take away all the trails there because it's nice to get people out there. I think it's good for the environmental movement in general to provide access for people to go into environment and from all ages and all communities have that personal experience of being out in a fairly natural environment and kind of become environmentalists by that process. Um, Yeah, I should point out some environmental groups locally, including environmental volunteers, which like their, their thing is taking kids out into nature to build that love of nature early on. Environmental volunteers signed on to a letter uh, saying, open the park. You know, and grassroots ecology, which helps manage through their volunteers, helps manage the park, um, has volunteers who aren't even residents, can't even go except when they're volunteering. Grassroots ecology is also signed on saying, you know what, we can do this. So you point out like environmental volunteers said to open the park, grassroots ecology said open the park. There's all these things you could do. And you're like, well, I, if they're still not convinced, 
comes back to like maybe their issue is they're not concerned for some people this is not everybody but for some people it's not how many people are in the park it's who's in the park and now i'm not going to say this applies to all people but we've heard some very clearly racist statements from people talking about mexicans from san jose black people from east palo alto people are going to have loud bar parties and barbecues um and disrespect the park and is sometimes explicitly racist sometimes you know it's clear dog whistles um i've mentioned this before uh, the uh, chief engineer of the radio station was you know listening to a city council meeting once and people were complaining it was improperly enforced the resident the non-residential ban uh because they saw people at foothills park who are clearly not residents and which you know raises the question: How are you able to visually inspect them and see their non-polluter residents? <laughs> I think there's probably a very ugly answer for for that question. Yeah, well, the answer is you know you look at the color of their skin and you could guess that they're not polluter residents because Palo Alto is a segregated community. Yeah, <laughs> you know, like let's be honest, you know, the city is, has a very uh, disproportionately small number of people who are Latino or African American who live in the city. Do, we, do you want to talk about um, the history of Palo Alto and, and segregation yeah, here or later? Yeah, Let, let's well, let's let's talk a little bit about maybe let's go a little, if you're open to it. I could go a little bit more into the play by play about what's happened with the park. Yeah, okay. Let, let's let's put a pin in this because oh, just get ready yeah. later. Uh, plenty plenty of history to, to, to dig into, <laughs> but I will mention one thing. You're talking about okay, people are saying overuse, uh, overutilization of the park is is a worry. There's also a weird twist on it, saying, well. We need to only allow Palo Alto people in because they take better care of it. Uh, there's there's a quote right. saying they have more pride of ownership, uh, and this is you know this is going to uh, stop the park from being uh, from being ravaged because they're just so yeah great. no it's yeah there's just like there's a level of like elitism and arrogance and selfishness that I think is a thread that runs through excuse me, um, unfortunately runs through a lot of debates in Palo Alto of the idea that Palo Alto isn't just a great place, but is the best place. Mm. It doesn't just have great people, has the best people. And that anyone who's not from Palo Alto doesn't share our values and won't care about the natural environment. And again, like you go to Rostradero Preserve and like people aren't trashing it and it's right next to Foothills Park. It's also in Palo Alto and it's open to non-residents. Yeah. Um, get over yourself. <laughs> so, so, yeah. You know, like as a, as a, somebody who grew up in Palo Alto, um, I, I, this is not my favorite thread in the community and it certainly doesn't represent everybody. You know, I want to be clear about that. And honestly, if this were to be decided on the ballot, I don't know how it would go. I don't know if most residents, most voters would vote to open and share the park with their neighbors or not. I really don't. There's a factoid. After they put this ordinance in 69, apparently in the early 70s, they had a survey by residents on whether they support it or don't support it, uh, or they'd like to open it up. And in the early 70s, a majority of Palo Alto residents in the survey supported opening it up to everybody. I don't know if it's gotten worse, but at least once upon a time, there was a majority. Uh, I It's it's very weird because we mentioned earlier the... A lot of comments like, okay, you know, obviously I've, I'm not I'm not racist. I have nothing that's opening it up, but I don't like the settlement saying we're racist. So, like, <laughs> but if you're actually doing the referendum, like, what is their, what are their talking points going to be? Like, it's, they've... Yeah, so, the, well, some of their talking points on the referendum are that, um, that is honestly 
some inaccurate statements about the process. Yeah. Um, People so just, actually, they're, they're a bunch of process wonks, you know, they just love process. Yeah. Yeah. So do you want do you want me to run through some like the detailed history or do you want to come back to that later? Okay. Let's go. Actually. Okay. Let's go back in time. Uh, and I've actually found, I reading this article, the original history of the band had to do with process wonks. Are you, are you aware of this? No, remind me. I'm not, I, like, I, most of this was before I was born. Yeah. So no, I let only, alone involved in local politics. I only so. learned this by going into a 1980 Stanford Daily article, some good research. But so, okay, this was acquired, most of it, not all of it, 1,200 acres. They uh, they got another 200 acres later. They got 1959 for $1. $1.3 million from Russell and Dorothy Lee. So this was objected to by, I'll just say one one busybody, some good government group, uh, saying that they acquired this without the proper 30-day notice. They, you know, they didn't notice it properly, so they started suing the city. This was taken up to this California Supreme Court, but eventually oh. they settled by putting a referendum on this. And this oh, and right. the city actually, yeah, I, I did hear about it's this. It's wild. Yeah. So the city actually, uh, they voted to buy it in the first place. And as they said, in order to, this is what the city manager at one point said, to salvage the project, which already like was like known as, oh, this is a mess. They would close it to non-residents as a handout to the good government groups. So that the quote unquote good government. Groups. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And you know what? Thanks for reminding me about that. I had heard about that. I mean, most of my focus has been on just, you know, is this the right thing to do or the wrong thing to do? Uh, but and some of that history is, um, and not everybody knows that history. It's, I mean, even I forgot about it. It's, you know, some of the just details. Well, I, I think you know, you go through. I mean, it's, it's, it, there's just how many libraries are full of the history of Palo <laughs> City Council, uh, rec- you know, recordings. Uh, it's, it's, it's an amazing uh, amount of history, and you can you can lose yourself in the details. Here's one more factoid: yeah. uh, the ACLU threatened to sue the city about it in 1973. Uh, the city responded by getting the police department to gather a report to say, no, we can't do it because crime will go up in the park. Uh, they actually, the one quote from their line is, if we open it up, it will draw a percentage of undesirables from elsewhere in, in the region. Elsewhere. Yeah. So maybe now is a good time to, you know, for in case anyone's listening to this who doesn't know Palo Alto and the immediate surrounding area very well, maybe we should talk a little bit about what segregation looks like in and around Palo Alto. Yeah. So, okay. So yeah, just, just, uh, <laughs> just tell us, tell us where we are now and let's get into the, the history. You know, like I said, you know, the number of people who live in Palo Alto who are black or brown is uh, extremely low, like one, 2%, something like that. African-American. I think this is the uh, lawsuit. 1.6% now is 1.6% 1959. It is not. T- yeah. So it is not improved yeah. since 1959. Um, and you know, back in the 50s and the 60s, Palo Alto was more, and like many suburban communities around the country and wealthy communities around the country, was more openly segregated. Yeah. Things like blockbusting by realtors, um, redlining by you know, federal government and banks. Um, it was a fairly segregated community. And the history of Palo Alto and East Palo Alto um, used to be used to have more black people in Palo Alto and more, you know, white people in East Palo Alto, and the realtors especially led efforts to get all the white all the black people out of Palo Alto into East Palo Alto yeah. and vice versa. Um, 
and East Palo Alto was not technically a city. It uh, wasn't incorporated as a city until the, I think, early 80s. Mm. Um, and so, you know, I, I have friends who moved to this area from other parts of the country, even in the South or places where, you know, people typically think they're going to encounter more racism. And they look at Palo Alto versus East Palo Alto. They say, I can't believe how much segregation there is here. It's like apartheid. Yeah. It's insane. And it's like there's a freeway that roughly is the border, really is a creek. Um, and so around the, around the spot of Highway 101, they're like, it's, it's nuts. You have a less affluent, more diverse community on one side. And on the other side, you have a less diverse, more affluent community. You know, for, for anyone to say that Palo Alto doesn't have systemic racism built in, it's like, well, look at that. And then you also add in that Palo Alto makes it very hard to add new housing, especially multifamily housing, that missing middle housing. It's kind of like, you know, townhomes, duplexes, technically low-income housing, low-market-rate housing, and that a lot of the same people who are opposing opening the park are a lot of the same people who have been leading the effort against more housing in Palo Alto, i.e., you see some of the parallels and the, the third point of putting here about segregation is like so we got a segregated park we got a we got segregated housing and we have segregated schools yeah right where Palo Alto schools are some of the best in the country neighboring uh school districts not so much some of them yeah ravenswood uh, is, the, things... is the east palo alto as well as the part of Menlo park which seems like it's east palo alto so it's like this weird yeah. cross-city segregation for schools yeah and so this is a pattern you see i think throughout a lot of the Bay Area, where you have white affluent good schools and less affluent, less white and worse schools. And I think all these are, are tied together. When people talk about, you know, not wanting to have more housing in Palo Alto, it's also they're, they're saying, oh, it's gonna destroy our community character. What do you mean by community character? When middle and middle class people are getting priced out of the city, you're worried about worsening community character. Maybe you mean you're worried about some types of people coming just like with the park. Or they're worried about damaging the schools. That's a common thing you hear about when people say, oh, if we have more housing in Palo Alto, it'll damage our schools. But Palo Alto schools have been losing attendance because young families can't afford Palo Alto. So if you're worried about more people coming to the schools because it'll damage the schools, what kind of people are you worried about? I'm pretty sure that's racist. I'm pretty sure that's classist. And so you see that the parks or the, the park, the housing, the schools are really just three parts of a sometimes explicitly racist, sometimes implicitly racist, and sometimes inadvertently racist, you know, systemic racism, institutional racism, perpetuation of the segregation of decades past. Yeah. You know, so I, I honestly don't really care if somebody's motivation is racism. I'm more concerned right now with the effect, right? The effect is most black and brown people in our area can't go to Foothills Park, yeah. can't live in Palo Alto, can't go to Palo Alto schools to the point where, like you said, you know, somebody sees somebody in the park who's black or brown and they immediately assume that person ain't from around here, are they? Yeah, it's I mean, to to Lydia Ku's statement is uh, she doesn't like the claim that Paul Alton's are racist and support segregation. Of course, I don't know what's in people's hearts. I don't know what's in their brains if they are racist. Right. But I think it is an objective fact that you are complicit with support, like supporting segregation if you are going along with this. Uh, well, it's 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 really an issue of understanding the difference between like personal racism versus structural, structural or institutional racism. Yeah. Uh, and 
in her recent comments against opening the park, Lydia Ku in a council meeting said, you know, these claims are fall apart on their face unless you're one of those people who believes that there's racism in everything. It's like, well, <laughs> she's basically like, like unironically demonstrating that she, like a lot of people in Palo Alto, isn't thinking about the structural and institutional racism, right? The, the policies which have the effect of disproportionately hurting people who happen to be certain ethnicities, which according to the Supreme Court, for instance, with the Housing Rights Act, the U.S. Supreme Court, which is not always the most liberal organization in the country, sure. um, uh, you know, you know, has supported you know, the doctrine of um, disparate impacts, right? If your policies have a disparate impact on certain ethnicities uh, in, in housing, that's a violation of the Fair Housing Act of 68, according to recent cases by the Supreme Court. Yeah, it's in, in, in you know, Lydia Koo, how could she be racist? She's married to a black man, you know, it's and she, you know, is and she's not white herself. Yeah. Right. And she's an immigrant herself. Yeah. And, you know, you know, bless her. And, <laughs> and, you know, I've nothing against, you know, her personally. Right. Or Greg Tanaka, who, you know, I, I there were things where I butted heads with them when I served them on council. There are times when um, I worked with them on initiatives. Um but again, you know, I don't, I don't want to pick too much on one or two people because there are a lot of people in the city who, when it comes to housing issues, schools, or the park, kind of continue this idea of, you know, we can't change, we can't let more people come in, or we don't have any responsibility to share our goodies with anyone else. And if you accuse us of being racist, you're the bad guy. Yeah, there was, there was some, uh, you know, I think... There was a resignation from the Parks and Recreation Commission, Ryan McCauley, and he was pointing out this was happening in the wake of Black Lives Matter protests, and yet Palo Alto is doing nothing to lift itself from its uh, structural racism. And this kind of hypocrisy yeah. is, you know, you see it everywhere, I think, throughout throughout California, but uh, Palo Alto is, uh, to me, an epicenter of this. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I, I've had tempting at it, right, because of what you just said, I'm going to run through a short play-by-play -play with a couple of dates, if that's okay. Okay, yeah, it's like we're, we're, we're nesting a lot of different stuff. <laughs> I have, like, two other layers of back to the reasons it's closed, but we're just all over the place. Go go for so, it. So, let me just, let's just run through a few things. So, you know, we talked about the ancient history of the park. So, recently, so you, like you said before, the Parks and Recreation Commission started looking into this and, and did a lot of research, dug up a lot of history and proposed in, I think, November of last year, so a year ago, a little over a year ago, proposed a pilot program to open the park to non-residents. Now, I'll be clear, I thought this pilot program was woefully inadequate. Yeah. I mean, I, I, you know, you heard my proposal earlier, which is open it to everyone, and if it gets crowded, charge five or ten bucks per car, you know, sure, and cool. call it a day. Um, and their proposal, I think, I think it was like 50 people who are not residents per day could come, but you have to buy a ticket online. And so it was, it, it seemed excessively complex mm. and too limited. And, but, you know, I guess it's a start. It's something. Um, and the city didn't take it up in the first few months of the year. Now city of Palo Alto and city council in particular tends to be slow on everything. So I'm not going to read, bad will on the part of the city manager or mayor for not bringing it up earlier. Uh, they were talking about doing it in April, ended up going to early June. They were going to talk about in early June and take up this proposal from the Parks and Rec Commission. And it got delayed until late June. Now, again, 
we're dealing with COVID, dealing with Black Lives Matter stuff. There's a lot going on in June of this year. It's also right before the council goes on its summer recess. So delaying it by a couple of weeks, not the worst thing in the world. Yeah. But during that couple of weeks, this community letter started circulating. End up, and now it's been signed by four members of Congress, including our local representative, Eshu, our local assembly member, our local state senator, the ACLU, NAACP, a bunch of local um, faith leaders, a bunch of Palo Alto former council members like myself and former Palo Alto mayors. And former mayors, um, on. And former mayors, right? And so it said, you know, it's time to put away this old policy of having to be a misdemeanor for non-residents to come to the park. And let's figure out a new policy to manage the park that's in line with our values and our understanding, protecting the environmental treasure that we have. Um, it's time to do that. And so on June 22nd, this is a Monday night, the council was getting ready for the summer recess. So they have two back-to-back meetings, June 22nd, Monday, June 23rd, Tuesday. On June 23rd, they were going to take up this Foothills Park pilot, this minor pilot program, finally. On June 22nd, the night before, a couple people said, you know, let's delay. I think it was Tanaka and Coos said, let's push off Foothills Park. And I think also there's a housing effort, affordable housing measure. Uh, let's push those off till after summer. And five members of council said, yeah, let's wait till after the summer break. Two members, council member Ku and Mayor Adrian Fine, objected and said, you know, we've got time tomorrow. We carefully planned out our schedule. We have time to take this up. Let's get it done. Um, uh, but they delayed uh, until you know, after a series of delays, they delayed again until August 3rd. That night, the night of that council meeting, when they said, we're not taking it up tomorrow, former judge and former council member, LaDoris Cordell, sent a letter to the city attorney threatening a lawsuit. Yeah. The next day, the 23rd, the day that the council was supposed to take up this pilot finally, Parks and Rec Commissioner Ryan McCauley submitted his letter of resignation. Yeah. And then you get to August 3rd. Council's back from the summer break. Well, actually, between that time, there's actually some uh, some actions. Uh, people oh, people yeah. visited the park <laughs> uh, and wrote, I think they did this several times because it got erased, uh, in chalk, uh, desegregate uh, in a large path. Some people yep. some people came into the park uh, prominently as non-residents, including Alyssa Cisneros, uh, wearing a Sunnyvale pin, to be turned away to demonstrate that she lacks the right to even protest the park at the park uh, yep. by listening for free speech. <laughs> yep. Uh, yep. Uh, but yeah, so th- that's right. So it was, it was, yeah, yeah. During the summer, during, uh, 4th of July, there was some protests. Um, yeah. People wrote, like you said, they wrote on page mill road, which is the, where you, the main entrance to the park is um, people wrote desegregate in big letters and the city washed away like a few hours later yeah. and then they rewrote it again. Um, and you know, this is, you know, the summer of 2020, you know, where the two, the three big stories in the country are COVID, Black Lives Matter, and the race to replace Donald Trump, right? So racism is pretty, and the, the complexities of segregation and racism and structural racism, institutional racism are really in the conversation locally and nationally. Um, but yeah, so after all that, we come back on August 3rd, council comes back and a couple of the more conservative council members, um, Tom DeBoyce and Eric Bilseth, looked like they finally they were finally coming around to approving the pilot. So it looked like you're going to have five votes to approve the pilot. This I still think woefully inadequate pilot. Um, and at the last minute, 
They already had a motion on the table they were discussing. Lydia Ku said, I'd like to propose an alternative motion to send this to the voters. Yeah. Greg Tanaka steps in and says, well, anything we can, we can figure out. And Liz Niss joins and says, let's actually send it to the voters, make it revenue neutral, do all these studies, do all this other stuff that makes it actually harder to do and delay it until the winter. And then um, Phil, Seth, and Du Bois realized, oh, we never really wanted to open. I mean, my read is that they never really wanted to open the park anyway, but they kind of felt like they had to at least try the pilot because yeah. it was so modest. And they realized, oh, we do this. We can look like we're proving the pilot, but still not really make it happen and delay it. And, and so it ended up being five to two. Again, Cormac, you know, Alison Cormac and Adrian Fine were the only ones who were opposed to this delay. As Adrian Fine said, I think very well at that meeting, you don't put civil rights to a vote. Yeah. You know, and he's been attacked by for that for being somehow anti-democratic, but you know the point of American democracy, you know, this is like, you know, civics and U.S. Gov 101 that we all take like in high school, and you know, we have certain rights which are not subject to a vote that are not subject to popular whim, right? Uh, that's kind of the point of having a constitution, a bill of rights, is yeah. that popular whim shouldn't de- determine our core rights, including right to access public spaces um so then yeah like we said earlier so that happened august 3rd september 15th there's the lawsuit then you get to november 2nd and there's been the lawsuit closed sessions with the city attorney and you had um adrian and and cormac who had wanted you know uh, adrian fine allison cormac had wanted to open the park now are joined by liz and the more conservative Tom DeVoyce and Eric Philseth stepping back from delay and be like, oh, guess we got to open the park. We got to go with the settlement. Um, my guess is that the city attorney probably told them in closed session we're going to lose. Sure. Because they were all like, we've got to, we've, you know, we, 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 we got to open the park and we got to do it quickly. And we got to accept this settlement that t- the settlement requires far more opening of the park than the pilot would have. Yeah, it's so it was great. kind of a self. It's, it was a self-owned by the, the conservatives. I think this is right? the history they, of like so many times <laughs> things change. It's usually when kind of the conservative elements overplay their hand, you know, and they're just. Right? And I think they absolutely overplay yep. their hand here. Yeah, my, yeah, uh, yeah. My guess is that the, my guess is that Phil Seth and Du Bois probably regret listening to you know. Maybe the lesson here is if uh, Lydia Ku and Greg Tanaka step in to save the day uh, to help you dodge even a modest liberalization, maybe you just should move ahead with your modest liberalization. Because now the city's got to open to all residents. No, no 50 people a day, no online registration. Yep. You've got to open it to non-residents. Uh, this is why, personally, I am... Uh, Tom Du Bois scares me far more than Lydia Koo, you know, as far as people who I'm politically you know, opposed to on, on different levels, because Tom Du Bois is clever enough not to cell phone. But Lydia Koo, I think, routinely <laughs> just goes in full bore and things blow up in her face. Well, and that's what I think is going to happen now with this law, with the referendum, assuming they get the signatures, which is TBD. Yeah. You know, we'll see. But assuming they get the, the signatures, they're going to, this is not like, their action in August threatened a lawsuit. Like they, they were playing with legal fire because they knew they'd had that threat of a lawsuit from Cordell. Yeah. And they saw the letter that was signed by the ACLU and the NAACP who were lead plaintiffs in the litigation, um, you know, later. So they knew they were taking a risk in August, but now there's no doubt. This oh, is not yeah. even legal jeopardy. Like they know 
if we put this on the ballot, the litigation will resume. And it's going to be a tough case. And I, and the, I should say you know, the, the, the focus of the litigation, where they, it looks like they thought they would have the strongest case, the plaintiffs was to focus on First Amendment rights, right of assembly, right of protest, right of speech. Right. So like you mentioned, you know, Alyssa Cisneros and others went to the park to protest yeah. and they were denied access to a public space to exercise the First Amendment rights to assemble, protest and speak. Yeah. And so there the, the lawsuit um, really focuses on First Amendment as the, where they thought they'd have the, the strongest argument. The, the lawsuit talks all about a lot of the history and the segregation in Palo Alto and and the park. But at the end of the day, they really focused on you know, that the case is really more about free speech uh, as far from a legal standpoint yeah like i guess a little bit more at the legal uh you know scenario here i mean we are both not lawyers but it's we're still allowed to speculate uh you know nothing gets it but i i, I came <laughs> into it being uh, kind of skeptical because i feel like you know a lot of bad stuff is still constitutional you know the california state yeah. constitution it's pretty pretty awful in a lot of ways so it's like okay just because it's evil doesn't mean it's unconstitutional <laughs> but going into it and looking at the case law uh, the stuff they actually are pointing to seems like they are very, very likely to say this is unconstitutional. There's a, a, a Connecticut case, Layden versus the town of Greenwich, uh, and they said uh, that uh, because it's a public forum and anything you shut off to non-residents, it has to have a compelling interest. And it needs to be, if there's any way to say there is an interest to, you know, uh, to have any regulations, prohibitions... Uh, it needs to be narrowly tailored. So in this case, there's a compelling interest to not congest the park. The narrowly tailored way to prevent it is to charge for parking, you know, to do some sort of other rationing program. Uh, it is not to block non-residents. That is, uh, that is not uh, what the Supreme Court would consider a narrowly tailored response. So uh, I think the California Supreme Court, you know, maybe even the federal, even though they're obviously swinging far to the right, uh, we'll, we'll see how this does. And this, this all lays upon old case law from 1920, U.S. v. Wheeler, about the right to travel within a state. Weird case, looked into it. It's about the, uh, uh, the, the, the town government of, of uh, Bisbee, Arizona, kidnapping a bunch of wobblies. Uh, <laughs> like it's a wild case, but that's where it all comes from. But yeah, I, I, I'm actually, after reading this, I feel, okay, I was always hoping they get shut down in court, but now I actually believe they will, so... Yeah, I think they've got a really strong case. They've got a, a law firm that's representing them. I think, I can't remember if it was pro bono or not. They've got a good, strong law firm representing them. you got the ACLU and the NAACP who know what they're doing. It was you know, actually kind of shocking. Lydia, I, I don't want to just pick on her, but you know, she said at the November 2nd meeting, she said that the NAACP is bullying and discrediting themselves and jeopardizing their reputation. <laughs> and then she came back and... She, on November 16th, what is the second reading? It was on the consent calendar. She voted against it. So did Tanaka. Uh, and Lydia spoke to her reasons for voting against it. And among her reasons, she said, I'm, I'm going to quote you. She said, the settlement contains no retraction nor apology from the plaintiffs for labeling Palo Alto and its residents as being racists. And she called it abusive. Um, and, you know, again, like we were talking about earlier, it's like the lawsuit doesn't say Palo Alto is racist. It doesn't say Palo residents are racists. Yeah. It says that there is a history of segregation. Yeah. Of Palo Alto not making it easy for people who are black or brown to move to Palo Alto and live in Palo Alto. 
Um, I would add that I think that's continuing with our current housing policies and our current opposition to state housing bills that would help you know dismantle segregation in Palo Alto. Um, but again, this is about systemic institutional racism. This isn't about like you individuals are racists. And so again, you know, there's I think I'll, I hear in a lot of the comp, the arg, you know the arguments, the discussions online and offline about Phil's Park, like our discussions about housing. Um, some people really, I think they really just don't understand that when people are talking about systemic or institutional racism, it's like, we're not calling you a racist. Yeah. You know, we're talking about the impacts hurting certain groups of people. And back in the fifties and the sixties, there was pretty clearly a racial motivation. Today, that might not be the case, but it's still the effect. Yeah, so some more of the history, you go back to the 1920s, uh, the Chamber of Commerce of Palo Alto uh, actually passed a resolution uh, I'm not sure how it was enforced, but they they said to create a segregated district for Oriental and colored residents of the city. They wanted to create a, you know, keep them one place. Uh, racial covenants were in place in Palo Alto on many properties. Uh, oh, still in a lot of a lot of people's deeds for their homes. Yeah. If you actually go and read all the fine print in your deed, if you own a home in Palo Alto, many people still have a, 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 a lines language in their deeds yeah. today in 2020 that says. You know, that no person who is not wholly of the white race can own this house. Yikes. And of course, it's not enforceable because of changes to state and federal law. Yes. But that, that language is still there. Yeah. it's. Right? Uh, I mean, it's not enforceable, but it's that history is still redounding into effects we're seeing today. Uh, of, of course, the, the major book, uh, The Color of Law, Richard Rothstein talks about Palo Alto prominently in a few sections, uh, mentioning uh, that. Uh, so the blockbusting, the realtors in the area would actually try to blockbust in East Palo Alto by by having free bus rides. And going through the area saying, you know, please, you know, we're, we're opening this up to, to, you know, colored residents in a way to scare the white residents out. Uh, and I think they said yeah. it went uh, in the course of uh, six years, it got up to 82 percent black residents in East Palo Alto. At the same time, we know from earlier, 1.6 percent black residents in, in Palo Alto. You know, like that's just mm-hmm. night and day. And it compares to other the other suburbs of the area, you got, you know, the Menlo Parks and the Sunnyvales, the Mountain Views. Those are more kind of similar to Palo Alto in a lot of ways. They're kind of not as expensive, but pretty close. East Palo Alto continues to be just the mirror image. It is, it is, and this, the housing pressure we're seeing. I know people who like are well paid. It's like, I, I'm still, I need to find affordable housing. Guess I'm moving to East Palo Alto. Imagine the displacement this is causing because of Palo Alto's inability and unwillingness to to house its workers. It's ugly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if, do you want me to talk at all about, um, sure. Should we talk about some of the, like this broader context and like, the recent history of the residentialist movement in Palo Alto. Let, time let's, for that? let's get that a little bit later. Cause I first, let's just talk about the rest of the reasons. Uh, and then we'll, oh, yeah, we'll finish right. up because <laughs> we, we, we put a pin right. in that a while ago. Uh, yeah. So the other reasons people say is, uh, well, of course it should be only for Palo Altans because this is paid for from our property tax. <laughs> uh, number one, right. Palo Alto, it's very funny for Contrilia is I think the most subsidized for prop 13 of, any city, at least it's the very top of the list in all of California. Uh, so they don't really pay their property tax to the degree they should. On top of it, of course, this comes out of the general fund, what pays for the park. The general fund is paid for through a number of sources. 
including many people who are not residents. You pay through sales tax, through commercial property tax, you know, and all sorts of, so it's a very- The ho hotel tax, yeah. which is definitely not residents paying that, right? Exactly, you know, so. so I just, it's, that is just yeah. like erroneous on its face right there. Right, right, and how about the, you know, business owner who's, I think, one of the co-litigants? Yeah. Uh, you, 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 they can't go, their employees can't go. Um, pretty... You know, and one of the other arguments people use related to this is they say, well, we paid for the park. Not even talking about current pay for upkeep. Yeah. Because again, remember that the argument against that is even if you agree that something in the city, you know, is paid for by the residents, which is a mixed factual case, even if you agreed with that, even if that were true, yeah. if we didn't have, is, you know, if we didn't have sales tax, hotel tax, et cetera, um, again, you could just, you know, charge a few bucks for everybody to go in, give a discount to residents. Sure. Um, and people, but another thing people talk about is not the current upkeep costs, but we paid for it at one point, you know, less than $2 million originally paid for which is like such a steal for such a huge plot of land like it's a, you couldn't get you know a quarter of an acre for that price today yeah and you know this is nestled between portola valley and los altos hills and the palo alto hills this is incredibly expensive land you get it for a couple mil and people are saying oh well we paid for it is there and no one else paid for it. and they say we asked every other city around here if they wanted to help pay for it, and they all said no. Yeah. But Los Altos and Los Altos Hills were not very old and didn't really have the financial resources to do that. Portola Valley wasn't a city yet, or had just become a city. East Palo Alto was not a city. Sure. There was no city of East Palo Alto, so we could not have gone to the city of East Palo Alto to ask them. So the factual arguments that people rely on for why we should not open it are factually flawed. Just like the legal the arguments around the referendum, I forgot to say, a lot of people backing this referendum, they, their argument is that this whole process should be done in public, that this was done behind closed doors, which is not true. Of course, when you're getting advice from your city attorney, that should be private because that's attorney-client privilege. But then they had multiple public meetings talking about it. Like it was at a public meeting when Lydia Ku said, and others said, this isn't all happening behind closed doors. I'm like you guys are all complaining about a closed door process you're literally in a public meeting right now yeah so uh one other thing I, you, you didn't mention so yeah east palo east palo also at the time was in fact unincorporated santa clara county land santa clara county itself offered in 1965 five hundred thousand dollars because this was the cost of their 200 acre addition and they said, we'll, right. we'll pay for it. We'll pay for all of this addition, but you need to open it up to all residents, like right. all the region right. or, or anybody. And, Paul and what did the city do? They, they said, no, no thanks. We will rather right. be segregated than take, uh, you know, <laughs> basically this would be uh, uh, over a quarter of the entire cost of the park. Uh, and they said, no. Yeah. Uh, so just like it's just blatantly lying with their own mythos. And then on top... Well, it's also, uh, to be fair, a lot of them just don't know this well we don't know this so i don't even see it's lying it's just not factually oh sure sure right? yeah good 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 clarification very diplomatic <laughs> but on top of it too i love the fact that there's a double standard here of saying we are responsible for 1950s palo alton residents uh buying this but we're not responsible for 1950s palo alto residents enforcing segregation like okay <laughs> sure yeah 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 no it, and it would you know so I remember when I was first running for city council, I met somebody who really helped frame my understanding a certain 
line of thinking in Palo Alto that's different from my own. I remember somebody just at an event and he said, because I was saying I wanted to, you know, make Palo Alto a little bit more affordable, have more apartments and condos and townhomes and duplexes, you know, stuff like that. And he's like, why? He said, look, Palo Alto is this so, it's really made a big impact on me understanding. He said, look, Palo Alto is a luxury good. Yeah. That's just a fact. And I said, well, I respectfully disagree. And that was, I think, the end of the conversation. I probably didn't get his vote. But, um, it really got me thinking, right? Especially over the last couple of decades, as the price in Palo Alto has gone from expensive to extremely expensive, it's, as it's gone from a upper middle class to extreme upper class community, because that's a change for even from when I was a kid. Yeah. Um, me was a nice community, it was affluent, but not like today. Yeah. So as that change has happened, if you bought your house in Palo Alto in the last 10, 20 years, you paid millions of dollars not hundreds of thousands and millions of dollars for your home. You pay tens of thousands of dollars every year just in property taxes. And you get to send your kids to some of the best schools in the country. And realtors today talk about Foothills Park as this exclusive perk of being a resident. So Palo Alto is a luxury good. And I don't think it should be, but it is, right? It is nice. It is expensive. And really the most important thing about a luxury good or one of the most important things about a luxury good is not just that it's nice expensive it's exclusive yeah right because if everybody could afford an, a ferrari if everybody could afford gucci it wouldn't be as special for the people who decided to save and spend so much on it right if you decided you want to work hard and spend millions of dollars on home in palo alto and then somebody comes along and says we want to make it easier for other people to live here it's like hey my Palo Alto address, not just my house, but my address, my pride, my ability to gloat about having a Palo Alto address is a good to me. I paid for it. Yeah. Why should other people have an easier time with that? And so this is actually one of the arguments against desegregating our housing by, I mean, by making housing more affordable in Palo Alto. Like even if it would help that person's own property increase in value by increasing the potential zoning capacity, they don't want it because what they really want is that sense of exclusivity. As, as I quoted and that earlier. that helps explain the, the housing, the schools, and the park. Yeah. It's all the same thread. As I quoted earlier, uh, Paul Alton's, they have more pride in ownership. You know, other people just need help. Oh, God. <laughs> uh, I mean, and, and the thing yeah. is about it. I mean, people say, oh, Paul Alton's always been the jewel of Silicon Valley. But, like, it's, it's wild the entire area is now exclusive, you know? Now even what used to be uh, a more modest suburb is, you know, cost $2 million down down Sunnyvale way. You know, it's just, it's... Yeah. And the, the, the real question is, you know, like, is this just like might makes right to the fact they have the property rights? Like, property exists because the government creates different institutions to protect it to serve the public interest. What is the public interest of protecting exclusive luxury goods? But I think this takes us back to the residentialists. And I think just to kind of introduce that, I think people may already know that the major blocks of, of Palo Alto, uh, you know, politics are the residentialists, which are the slow growth and then the the pro housing, I guess, you know, pro growth, pro housing. What, say, what would you call the? Well, I, I would actually say three groups, probably. Okay. Um, if you had to say three, but the most, the only one that's really cohesive 
is the residentialist. And that's what they call themselves. This is this isn't a slur. They call right. themselves residentialists. They, right. That's their term for themselves as residentialists. They wear it as a as a badge of pride. Um, and they ask, are you a residentialist or not? <laughs> yeah. Right? It's like, are you on are you on the team or not? And they don't it's like for them, there's two sides. You're a residentialist or not. From my perspective, having been on the council, I mean, I felt like it was a coalition government where you had me and like one other person who are progressive and some people who are more old school establishment, pro-business, pro-development, but really didn't care about renters. Sure. Um, and yeah, the residentialists who are anti-business and didn't care about renters very much uh, and certainly didn't want more housing and certainly didn't care about addressing regional segregation um, or addressing historic wrongs. Yeah. Uh, you know, and so, you know, we had to form a kind of a coalition of like the old school establishment and the progressives to have enough votes for a couple of years that I was on council. Um, and now the residentialists have gotten back their, uh, their majority. With this Bloodbath, you know, this, this yeah. last election, but yeah, I, yeah. I think you're right to say there is a pro equity anti-exclusionary block, which is, I think has a lot of moral weight behind it, but you know, I think always, but not a lot of power in the current council. Yeah. I think within the exclusionary city, like Palo Alto is always an uphill fight. And then you have kind of the chamber of commerce business types. I think Greg Knaka yeah. is kind of the best example of that. And, and frankly, in, in Lizness sure, is yeah, I think. Know, more of like the old school establishment. Um, and then I'm not even sure exactly where in place Cormac uh, but then the residentialist block on the current council, the outgoing council, is, you know, Tom DeVois, Eric Felseth, Lydia Koo. Yeah, like a, they're going to have real, and they're going to have a majority. Yeah, exactly. I mean, election. I think they're just extreme ideologues as far as this goes. Yeah, they're being joined by Greer Stone, who is, uh, you know, I'd say if as anything as as strong an ideologue as, as those people, even though he is kind of, he's a young guy who's not even a, a homeowner, but he knows his audience. Uh, and then finally, Pat Burt, who is, I'd say, in that block, but maybe a bit more moderated. Yeah, Pat. Pat's good on. He's pretty good on climate stuff. He's pretty good on bike stuff. Um, but on housing, he has, in, in my view, moved to the right on housing over the last several years. Um, and so, you know, my first couple years on council, there was a five-vote majority for the residentialists, including Pat Burt. Yeah, he was kind of the Justice Kennedy. You know, sure. like Justice Kennedy is conservative. But he was a swing vote sometimes. So that's kind of how I see Pat Burt when it comes to ideology. But I think he's become more staunchly anti-housing, especially market rate, you know, missing middle market rate housing. An unpopular opinion, uh, yeah. housing is climate change policy. You know, you can't be yeah. <laughs> you can't be good on climate change if your solution to where people who work in Palo Alto live is is Tracy and Manteca, you know. Yeah, if you if yeah if you're if you're promote it's kind of like the racism thing, right? Like I'm not calling you a racist if you support single family zoning only. You might be. Some people are openly, but it might just be that the policies you're supporting have the effect of harming integration. And same thing, right? If the policies you support lead to urban sprawl, destruction of open space, and longer commutes, and le less efficient for uh, electricity and water land use policies you're not a great environmentalist. You're kind of missing a, you got a big blind spot and I hope you change your views if you really care about the environment. Yeah, and um, I, I won't, I mean, and I'll say, you know, Pat Burt, I think is a more polite person and sounds more reasonable, but I think, I think 
across the board in housing has always come down on the wrong side of every vote and I think would be colored as the most NIMBY candidate on almost any other city council. It's just in Palo Alto, you have a couple people who are just so extreme that he starts to seem almost tolerable by, by consequence on, on these issues. Yeah, well, having served with him, I um, uh, I don't know if I would agree with the personality description that you offer. Interesting. Well, okay. Well, that's that's. But, um, well, I'm talking about maybe you his, talk, talk his, to some his of his former colleagues. Yeah, uh, sure. Yeah, you can talk to some of his former colleagues, especially women he served with, and you might get a different take. Mm. Um, but, um, uh, you know, but it, it's kind of like another reflection of the arrogance, right? Just arrogance and condescension that you see from so many of the residentialists. Um, so I, I, I'd like to share this whole idea of the residentialists, right? I'd love to share kind of my take on them because I spent a, a lot of time working with them, yeah. trying to figure out, like, trying to explain what this term means. What is what is this residentialist ideology, right? That came out of, um, well, it came out of trying to stop palatal growth back in the 60s, 70s. In some ways, it was good. In some ways, it stopped urban sprawl, and that was good. It saved the Baylands, Australia Preserve, Foothills Park. That was good, yeah. right? Stopping urban sprawl is good, but they were also behind you know things like the 50-foot height limit and anti-density, so they stopped infill density, which is bad, right? So it's like we see with a lot of like like the local Sierra Club where uh, not all of them, but a lot of members of the local Sierra Club feel you know are just against development entirely, right? They don't want urban sprawl, but they also don't want density. It's like, so there's a there's a good and a bad piece to that anti-development. And, and let's be very clear, approach. they did not stop sprawl all the way out to Tracy, you know? It is, <laughs> right, right. Because if it doesn't happen here, it ends up happening somewhere yeah, else, these people right? don't disappear, you know? It just, but I, right. I, I, absolutely, I do say preserving the the wilderness, or not even the wilderness, but just the open spaces in some wilderness, fantastic, you know? We need to be doing yeah, more. Absolutely. That was actually one of the more devastating city council meetings I was at was someone wanted to build a gigantic single-family home out in green space in the hills of South Palo Alto, and you know this passed easily, and they want to build like a modest apartment building on University Avenue, and everyone's fighting. It's like how is this so much easier? Even you know the res- right. the anti the the anti sprawl people were were supporting green greenfield sprawl, and like so. Yeah. So what is a residentialist, right? So you, 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 uh, people who listen to your show probably heard like the history of Palo Alto with like, you know, in recent political history is like the big turning point in recent political history in Palo Alto was the Maybell development that was proposed. Sure. A non-profit, non-profit developer proposes 60 units of affordable senior housing and a dozen single family homes to go with it to help pay for the affordable senior housing on a an orchard that's going to get redeveloped into something because all the trees are old and dying and it's next to a park and next to some, near some single family homes, but also next to some bigger apartments that are much larger. And that was fought by let the opposition was led by Tom Du Bois and Eric Philseth and Lydia Koo. They got a referendum, they put on the ballot in a special election and they beat it. And then they used that to, they turned that campaign into a, political action committee called politics for sensible zoning or PAS. Love PAS. And they used that success as the launching point for their political careers with Tom and Eric and uh, getting elected in 2014 and Lydia getting elected in 2016. Um, and they go from opposing this affordable senior and now it's their problem is they just hate market rate housing for not being affordable enough. It's just, Well, that's what they say. That's right? what they say. Again, it's the moving goalposts, right? They, they realized quickly when they first were opposing Maybell, 
a lot of people were saying, well, I don't want affordable housing. And they very, very early on immediately realized that's not a good argument. So they started talking about things like, oh, it'll create traffic and bike safety issues. And it's um, that we're requiring a change with the general plan because we can't change our plans to have more affordable housing, God forbid, um, it process issues. And it goes back to the, the, the narrowly tailoring response. You have a problem with congestion in the city. You have a problem with, you know, all these different issues. Deal with them directly. Don't preserve the exclusionary zoning broadly. It's, I don't know. Right. It's Yeah. Well, what I, so here's the thing. Like, I used to just think, like, residentialists, they're just NIMBYs, right? Not in my backyard. Just anti-development. They're just NIMBYs. But what I've realized over time is that it is actually a more cohesive ideology. It's one I totally disagree with. But it's a pretty cohesive ideology, and I'd like to share it with you. Go ahead. Okay. So it's the it's really an ideology about the role of government and the role of the city council. It's the idea that the role of the city council is to fight for the interests of current Palo residents only to the exclusion of all other potential interests. And by residents, it often means homeowners, but sometimes they care about renters too. So that's, that, but that's really their focus. And so the idea is that anytime you're considering a policy choice in their attitude, their attitude is that the proper frame for considering that policy choice is how will this choice help, hurt, or inconvenience current Palo Alto residents and especially homeowners. And viewed through that lens, everything starts to make more sense. Um, an analogy I'd give is, I think they really think of the city council as like the board of an HOA. Yeah, absolutely. Now, if you were, right, if let's say you live in a condo complex and you've got a homeowners association. If your HOA board started doing things to make it easier for people who live in other condo complexes to use your amenities, that would be inappropriate. If they started caring about people in other condo complexes just as much as they cared about you, that would be inappropriate. But HOA boards don't swear an oath of office to uphold the Constitution of the United States of America and the state of California. And HOA right? boards are not granted <laughs> their powers by the state government in... Exactly. I was just going to say that. Yeah. 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 So it's like... It, it really is a question of like, is your job to serve the residents or is your job to serve the public and the public good? And the public includes people who aren't residents, people who aren't homeowners, people who are homeless, people who live in RVs, people who are going to own a home here in 30 years, but haven't even been born yet. Yeah. That's all part of the people who aren't even citizens, but who live here. Um, so so I think that's you know why it's kind of a it's a bad analogy. I I got a a good example was I remember a meeting in the finance committee I was on with Eric Philseth and we were talking about how the city could encourage more electric vehicle charging stations in the city, paying for them ourselves and putting them in public lots, helping subsidize them in private lots. So like you go to Safeway or something and you maybe have a charge a vehicle charging station there and maybe the city helped encourage that. And I don't remember what the vote was at the end of the day of that meeting. But I remember really pretty clearly Eric Philstead's line of questioning and argumentation about this. He was really skeptical about this. He said, you know, who are these charging stations really going to help? Who's really going to, he said, and look, Eric's a smart guy. Yeah. And I appreciate that he has, I think, the most internally consistent ideology of the movement. 
of the council members I served with. That's in, the professor of the residentialists. <laughs> right. Yeah. But I totally disagree with it. Right. I think it's just but the wrong ideology for a, a public servant. He said, look, he said, I have an electric vehicle. He owns a Tesla. He said, I have an electric vehicle. I've had it for years. I think I've charged it outside of my home maybe twice. And I think most Palo Alto residents, this is me paraphrasing, trying to remember the exact words of Eric Felseth from several years ago. He said, I think most Palo Alto residents will charge their vehicles at home. So if we're using public money to help pay for part uh, for charging stations in public places, who's that really going to help? I think it's going to help somebody other than Palo Alto residents. I don't think it's the exact words because he ends every sentence with right, 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 <laughs> right. Uh, <laughs> You know, that, that really drove home for me. I was like, I, I remember after that meeting, like, oh, they're not just NIMBYs. Sure. They really have this deep, cohesive ideology that the job of the city council is to serve current residents, especially homeowners and taxpayers, to the extent, to the, um, to, at the expense of all others. Now, Eric also is an avowed environmentalist. Sure. Touts his credit as environmentalist. Um, but here he is skeptical or even opposed to supporting electric vehicle charging if it supports somebody other than residents. I just think it's interesting when somebody has two ideologies or two values that they claim to support both of, but you got to pick. Yeah. Which one do you pick? That's a very telling moment in life and in politics. And here, Eric showed like his top ideology is residentialism. Environmentalism was secondary to that. Um, and really, I, I compare residentialism to other right-wing populist movements. Right-wing populist movements always talk about the people in mythic terms. Blood and soil, right? baby. How, right? We, we or I speak for the people. Only we, our movement, only I speak for the people. And the people, the definition changes over time. You know, people like, you know, Timothy Snyder and others have written about, uh, you know, right-wing authoritarianism. I'm not an expert, um, but, you know, who the people are changes depending on what's what suits their their interests but it's always about like we're here as the real voice of the people and we're here to serve the people at the expense of the other yeah you see the analogy here i i, I right? it's, yeah it's not the people it's the residents in her comments voting against opening foils park lydia said i'm doing this on behalf of the residents it's 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 some ugly you know, it is, it's i mean it it's really nationalism on you know uh, like a the, the level of a couple though. square square miles you know it's right, it's right it's provincialism and kind of nationalism it is a kind of toned down very local right-wing populist movement so that is what what residentialism is in my view um, I I I, I would so I would co-sign most of, you know, if not all of that analysis. It is interesting. You you talk about you know kind of the Chamber of Commerce wing. I think you know you could say what is their interest. I would say almost to a T. They are I think effective in optimizing the cash flow to the revenue of the city. It really isn't like a rational optimizing firm. Greg Tanaka every single time he says, oh we're you know. We're having this uh, this water. We're giving to East Palo Alto. Couldn't we charge them? <laughs> you know, just finding any yeah. excuse to kind of get more money. As opposed to, I would say that the anti-exclusionary, the YIMBY, the you know, the pro-housing side, seems to have an ideology which is, I, I think, <laughs> perhaps you know, uh, you know, hard to boil down to one goal. But I would say tends to be. I, I think uh, I, I would describe it as kind of 
at least viewing the the joint humanity of all residents. A question for you: I know you you before joined the Democratic Party were a green, you know, green party dude. So why, how do you feel well, about a long time ago? Sure, I, <laughs> I never remember really you mentioned that. I was, I, mean, I, I was registered green party right after, um, like when I turned 18. So I grew up in the nineties, you know, eighties and nineties, graduated, gone to high school in Palo Alto in 99. And I was, you know, well, it was pretty radical. You know, my favorite band was Rage Against the Machine. I was reading a lot of Noam Chomsky in high school and Bill Clinton and Clinton Blair, third way, neoliberalism was you know in power in america and the uk and there is no alternative right and i thought that was i I didn't support that i wanted the democratic party to be more liberal and i I thought clinton was really disappointing so i registered green out of protest but i mean i know i was never involved with the green party and then okay i I didn't know if you actually got involved with the party apparatus in any kind of way Uh, not really it was just just my party registration and then i I re-registered as democrat in 2008 because i wanted to vote for barack obama in the primary because at that point i was not ready for another clinton (laughs) i was like i you know um you know I, i i have a ton of respect for for hillary clinton and you know I supported Bernie in 2016 primary. I supported Hillary in the general. You know, I, I got a ton of respect for her. And I thought, you know, anyway, but I, I don't need to defend all my. I, I <laughs> my guess but my, my question for you history. is just in general, the Sierra Club supporting Lydia Koo and the fact that Phil Seth and Pert, Bert talk about how they're avowed environmentalists. What what do you, like, do you, do you have hope that the environmental movement could kind of get its, you know, maybe it's, it's oh, yeah. coherence together? Oh, I, absolutely. Look, I also got endorsed by the by the Sierra Club twice, when I ran and won, and when I ran and lost in 2014, 2018. Um, so I, I do not. And if you look at the National Sierra Club's positions going back decades, yeah, on land use, very clearly against urban sprawl, pro infill development, and against urban sprawl, it's just a question of applying that at the local level and applying it consistently, and as the climate crisis grows in its you know as it becomes more of a present and opposed to a future threat as more young people grow up i mean i I think that the yimby social justice environmental nexus is really obvious i mean that's me i think it's like it makes sense like i was like i'm a progressive that's why i care about the environment like you know I, i i'm a progressive that's why i want like i want I want, I want, I want to protect the environment. I want to protect social justice. I want to improve social justice. So I call myself progressive, and then it's just like, oh, well, I care about social justice. I care about economic equality, racial equity, and I care about protecting the environment. Makes sense to support more housing, right? And I would. So I think a lot of people can follow that same path of yeah. being like, I care about the environment. Thus, I want more housing as infill instead of urban sprawl, because that's what the choice. You just have to remind people, like. There is a binary choice. Yeah, it's infill development or urban sprawl. One of them is good for the environment in a lot of ways. The other is bad for the environment in a lot of ways. There are a lot of other details about like construction techniques and materials, but ultimately, do you want urban sprawl or not? And that's that's yeah. that. If I want to turn a binary back on them, that's how I do it. And I would say that yeah, climate change makes very very plain to see that there is no such thing as localism. Local control will never save you from the collective action of of climate change. And I I just think it's it's kind of willful. Uh, obliviousness when people feel that local control is best and they have no real answer for any of these 
these these problems. Uh, I guess my other question to you is: We kind of see in this lawsuit, uh, you know, and we have seen before with stuff like the Reno process, Palo Alto will only act when. I mean, this is my take when you have external pressure. I don't think yes. it's going to fix itself inside <laughs> the system. And I mean, but you, in fact, serve within the system. You, 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 you have the scars to show for it. Uh, what, like, uh, well, what is yeah. what is your thought about? Because I'm I'm not against the kind of accountability and the kind of personal connection of local government. I think it's great, but it is not working right now in the way we have it. I'm kind of curious as far as localism versus regionalism. What do you what do you what do you think the future can be and should be? How honest about my radical positions do you want me to be? Uh, um, I, I want you I, do whatever it takes. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, you throw your entire future on, on the fire to be on. Uh, just do whatever seems uh, right. Uh, it's, uh, I just I, I just don't want to turn too many people off. But when it comes to land use, here's a question: like 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 my frame isn't just thinking about like what's the best for the current residents my thing my frame is often is is like a big political it's like one of the classic political science questions right what constitutes a legitimate government yeah like the questions of a legitimacy are central right and this is like what we see with trump trying to destroy the legitimacy of the incoming Biden administration destroy the legitimacy of our elections while also railing against density and pre preserving single family zoning thank you trump for by the way and the Republican Party for making clear that this is a left-right issue. Oh, it's very um, funny. <laughs> but um, I think a lot about questions of legitimacy. So let's say you create a city and you say that most black and brown people can't live there. And over time, you use other policies like density controls to make sure that even though legally black and brown people can move in, practically it's harder for them to move in. And the people who can vote in your city are the people who live in your city. Is your electorate a legitimate electorate in deciding land use policy? I I have I have said many times, uh, it's very weird. We have conflict of interest if there's development on your block, but there is, I think, definite conflict of interest in all sorts of other ways when you talk about your own property values from just being in the city supporting these kind of local issues. But yeah, I mean, as you said, if you view the entire government as a big HOA, like how is that legitimate? It's just it's just pure naked property rights. Yeah. And it's or not just, and not just property rights, but just like it's 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 to me. You know, I don't know it's there's the attitude of the residentialists. Right, that's the particular political ideology, right? Where to them, and I don't want to be really just put a like to kind of drive this home. Going back to the, what is, what is the residentialist worldview as I see it? It's if you are a council member, and you prioritize the interests of somebody who is not a current college resident, you're violating your job. You are not doing your job, and you're violating your duty. It's it's like uh, what were the what were firm is, accountability, where you must be yeah. uh, shareholder interests must always be right. paramount. Right. Yeah, same. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And so, and that also means that if the city decides to do something to benefit somebody who's not a resident, or a cause like environmentalism that is not directly impacting residents, it's treason. They, they it was either a violation of their duty, or at worst, it's a violation of their duty. At best, it's charity. Yeah. Yeah. So they can do it. But only if it's as charity. And this goes back to like Lydia's issue of 
And actually, Eric, even though he agreed with the settlement, made comments about, oh, I don't think this is what most college residents would want or whatever. But, you know, they really take umbrage at the idea that you they have a responsibility to help anyone outside of the city. Again, forgetting that the oath of office every council member takes is about swearing to uphold the Constitution of the United States and the state of California, um, which is not just about protecting politics. So there's like nothing about, I swear to uphold the interests of politics residents to the exclusion of all others. There's nothing about that in the oath of office. Yeah. There really isn't. Um, but going back to legitimacy, like regardless of ideology, if people who have an interest in the governmental decisions made in a city are denied the opportunity to live in that city and thus the opportunity to vote in that city, in my view, that city's electorate is an illegitimate electorate. And that means that the decisions, especially on land use, should not be allowed to be made at the local level in a segregated exclusive city, but must be raised up to the county or state level. I think that's very as a coherent. Question of, <laughs> as a question of just like stepping back, as a question of as answering that big question or applying that big question of legitimacy from political science. I, actually, I think I think I would elections. I would disagree. You say county or state. I think the land use should be the MTC regional government should be the governing land that, use authority. That's that's my that's my preference. Yeah. Okay. I mean, and to me, like if Palo Alto eliminated density controls even if we kept our height limit if we kept our height limits if we kept if we eliminated density controls uh and open foils park um i wouldn't feel that way like if you if we just made a few policy changes i'd say well palo alto's not it's kind of like you know the civil rights act or sorry the voting rights act right there are some like specific things in there you know the supreme court shot some of them down uh about like looking at historically communities and states that historically disenfranchised voters had to really prove they had to do a little bit more under the voting rights act yeah i think it should be the same with housing right if a city is historically or recently as politics continues to perpetuate has historically or recently excluded people based on race or class or disproportionately of certain races and classes then we should lose our power as an electorate to decide our land use unless and until we change those policies and take some steps to maybe be proactive so maybe some even some kind of reparations yeah um, i was i think getting rid of active exclusion is the least you can do i think you talk yes, about that should be the floor like right. real real <laughs> reparations a real jubilee of actually saying you know there has been inequities uh, in property and other, you know, and, and representation for generations, you don't just undo it that easily. And I think, I think, yeah, it is possible, I think, to balance interests and have a system going forward, which considers the greater good versus local interests in a way that is fair. But that's not enough in my mind. I think we actually need to be doing real rebalancing of these wrongs and no one is and i i, I it's they're not even fighting against that saying oh, pl oh we'll get rid of this but we're not doing reparations they're just saying no we have the power we have the might we're not going to give you a single inch on anything and i don't know it's it's it's, it's ugly yeah and then at the minimum it's kind of like that like equality versus equity kind of debate you know it's like at the minimum 
let people have duplexes and triplexes and townhomes and apartments, right? Minimum. Yeah. Really, we should pursue equity and make it easier for people who have been historically and continue to be excluded from Palo Alto to live in Palo Alto and cities like Palo Alto. You know, another idea that's occurred to me recently as far as a voting reform, going back to, again, this question of like, who's the government accountable to? Not just who's your, because your duty is not just to serve voters or not just your voters, not just homeowners, it's to serve the general public. But you're accountable besides the law and the constitution of the state and the country, you're accountable as a council member to your voters. So again, thinking about what makes for an electorate that's legitimate. Another idea I've been thinking about is that and I don't even know if this is possible. Would it be possible though, maybe at a state constitutional level to say that if you work or attend school in a city, but you live in a different city. I think I know where you're going. I've, I've thought this many times. That, that you should maybe have a choice about where you cast your vote. Or you have multiple you, votes that have different impacts right. based upon what they uh, are in reference to. Right, right. Or, yeah, or maybe you just get, you could say, like, I'll get a 50% vote in one city. Maybe I live in Mountain View, I work in Palo Alto. Yeah. Maybe you should be able to, um, you know, have a 50% vote in Mountain View and a 50% vote in Palo Alto. Or you say, you know, you get to pick. You want to vote fully in Palo Alto, fully in Mountain View, or split at 50-50. Um, but now we're talking really crazy radical stuff. This is all on the question of what shouldn't it look like. Um, it's, it yeah, just we shows should it. have no density. We should have you know, we should have reparations, and we should have a shared franchise between the places where you spend your time. And and overturn uh, property and full land value tax. You know all all the obvious ones. Uh, <laughs> th- th- those are your issues. Yeah. Um, oh, it's 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 a potato potato. <laughs> but uh... Uh, but but as far as what will happen, I think we need to keep building the public positions i i think like i've seen this like when the national issues we're facing just like the local, the local issues i think that what where we really need to focus our time is building public opinion support because when public opinion is fully on board or strong majorities of public opinion in the state of california are on board with desegregation actively desegregating then the state legislature Will probably come around and the governor will feel forced to act yeah over the objections of places like palo alto atherton or whoever so here's another question we, we've been going very long but just as far as leaving political institutions as they are and kind of remedying these impacts through state interventions this is kind of what's going on and getting a lot of pushback versus the other thought would be no places like Palo Alto and Atherton, Beverly Hills are effectively gangster states. They should be wiped off the map first. So to allow the political actions to deal with them, I, I, I have been kind of being more and more swayed to saying allowing these places to exist is becoming untenable. Uh, talk me down well, from the ledge or tell me I'm right. <laughs> so this is why I was saying I think they are, at least on land use issues, illegitimate electorates. Sure. Right. And that's kind of that's kind of where I have landed. I mean, I kind of joke about we need municipal disincorporation of cities that don't actively desegregate, but it's a good stick. Honest, like, honestly. Yeah, like maybe we need to have that out there as a stick, but um, you know, like maybe receivership, right? Where it's like you're not disincorporated, it's just that your ability to handle your issues at the local level, you have failed at 
you fail your responsibilities for taking the right. And we do see some of that with some recent legislation that's passed, right? Yeah. We see that with, you know, housing accountability, um, SB 35, like we're starting to nibble at that, you know, where cities have rights and responsibilities. And if they fail in their responsibilities, they lose some of their rights. Sure. And so I don't think you need to, I don't. It could be a lot more granular. Like, it, right, it could be, it also could just be more aggressive. Sure. And I don't think you necessarily need to go to municipal disincorporation which I, I don't really want to see happen. I, I, I agree. It's, it's a very crude response. Still live here and still vote. Yeah. Right? It's a crude um, response, but it <laughs> is at least clean. I think that's the issue, you know? Uh, and I, yeah. I worry that, like, yeah, death of a million cuts is never really going to change uh, the real wrongs you need to, to get yeah. at. No, I, I think I think the, the, a, a better middle ground is to say, just really clearly, not just, like, on one issue, on one property or another property, but, like, all land use decisions will be taken away from a municipality and given to a higher power, be the county, MTC, or state, right? Uh, all of your land use decisions will be given to a higher power. If you consistently fail at your legal responsibilities as a city, and I think that would be a reasonable, you know, a reasonable step. Well, uh, SB 35 is like one of the first things that really does this. The fact they're failing yeah. their housing and they get their land use uh, restrictions taken away. It's it's lovely stuff, you know? Yeah. Uh, and so I think, I, you know, it's like you've you got a chance and you know what the consequences are going to be if you fail. Yeah. And that's kind of my, that's kind of my view on regulation in general. Like I want to give people and organizations and cities and companies, you know, chances to do the right thing. But let them know, hey, if you screw up, if you if you are if you dismiss your responsibilities or fail to meet your responsibilities, somebody's going to step in and take control. I that, and it's up to you. I think it's a lovely vision. So yeah, we've been talking for uh, for a while now, but uh, yeah, thanks so much for uh, giving the rundown on. Uh, on this park. Oh, by the way, uh, uh, I guess it's slowly going to change its name to Foothills Nature Preserve. That's interesting. I don't know if the referendum is yeah. going to change that, but it's something. I, <laughs> no, I don't think so. I mean, that's that's fine. It was called Foothills Nature Preserve, like with yeah, um, you know, like with Rosterdale. That's fine. Yeah, I mean, I, I didn't bring it up because not really that important. But uh, yeah, in, in closing, uh, yeah, yeah, it's a lot of stuff. And I guess uh, keep out for the news to see what's going on in this referendum. I don't know if I should root against it or for it because I think <laughs> the kind of backlash of if it's successful might be so you know, delicious and like, just good to just see the city have this blow up in their face that I don't know. Yeah. I, I don't know if accelerationism is, is, you know, a sucker's <laughs> game, but I, I don't know. I, I, I'm not crazy about hardcore accelerationism, but like if they get the signatures, remember this is a thing. If like three, two and a half thousand, three thousand people get their signatures, it forces the city back into court, which yeah. I also think is just like, that's a bad call. Like <laughs> out of a city with 68,000 residents, Three that less than three thousand can force the city back into litigation. It might never, even if they get it, they might never end up getting to the ballot because it might be resolved in court, maybe against the probably against the city. Yeah, it sounds like that's going to be the thing. It will. It's. So this is. I think it will. It will go to the twenty twenty two ballot unless they get twelve percent. I think I read. Then they could have a special election. So yeah, but but my point is, I don't think it's even going to get to the ballot because I think it'll be. I think a court will. I think so. It. I think so. And so I think that this is 
this is not just, you know, cutting off your nose to spite your face. This is just a quixotic, you know, like fool's errand. This is a lost cause. But I really do believe that the people behind this really believe in what they're saying. They believe in what they're doing. Sure. They're wrong. They're mistaken. I, I don't know if they're mean, wrong, or crazy, but they're they're off it, base about what's the right thing to do. And they're wrong about how effective their effort's going to be. It's, you can, again, look at a national example. Trump knows he's not going to be president after January 20th, but he keeps fighting publicly to show that he's fighting for the people, for his people. Yeah. I think people like Councilmember Koo are keep on fighting. Like, I don't know, do they know they're going to lose anyway, or are they just doing it to show that they're fighting for the residents? Slaves to their own ideology in so, some ways. And uh, yeah. I don't know. It's Yeah, it's I, I think... Uh, wheels wheels are turning slowly and slowly, but well, I guess we'll we'll see. This has been a long time coming, but you know something interesting will happen one way or another. But uh, yeah, thanks thanks so much for being here. You know, it's been it's been it's hey. been fun. So appreciate you having me. <laughs> Take it easy. We have been hearing from Corey Wolbach all about Foothills Park, its exclusion, the referendum, and much much more. You can listen to this episode and all previous episodes of this radio program at the website. See the cat. Org. This is a presentation of Kezia Shiro, Stanford.